to the Ego Sumvia podcast with me, Father Andrew Eber. This week we celebrate the great feast of Corpus Christi, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So let's begin by saying that beautiful prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas to the Eucharist, the Anima Christi. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Never permit me to be separated from you. From the malignant foe, defend me. At the hour of my death, call me. And bid me come to you, that with your saints I may praise you for ever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to the crowd, I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. Then the Jews started arguing with one another. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they said. Jesus replied, I tell you most solemnly, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. Anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life, and I shall raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I live in him. As I, who am sent by the living Father, myself draw life from the Father, so whoever eats me will draw life from me. This is the bread come down from heaven, not like the bread our ancestors ate, they are dead. But anyone who eats this bread will live forever. The Gospel of the Lord I first started going to Mass 25 years ago, when I was staying in Malaysia for a couple of months in Kuala Lumpur. I wasn't yet a Catholic, I was still an Anglican. But back in the UK, I had started going to church for the first time in many years, and now I was in Malaysia, I thought I would carry on. As a former British colony, there was, of course, an Anglican church in Kuala Lumpur. In fact, there was an Anglican cathedral in Kuala Lumpur, but I have to confess it was a bit of a disappointment. Although they called it a cathedral, it was really very much like an English village church, very small. You couldn't get more than 200 people in there, but when I was there, the Sunday congregation was about 25, a handful of tourists and some elderly converts from, I suppose, those colonial times. And it was, in truth, lifeless. There was no life there. But a short distance away, just a couple of streets away, was the Catholic Cathedral, St. John the Evangelist. So one Sunday I decided to take a look in there, and it was full. It was full of people of all ages and all colours, 
and it was full of life. There was a real energy there, and there was the life that I'd missed in the tiny Anglican cathedral. So I stayed. What was the difference? What was it that attracted all these people and that gave life to the building and to the community? Well, I didn't know it then, but it was, I realised later, the Eucharist, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ, living and present at the heart of the community and at the heart of the building. Because without the Eucharist, the church building is just bricks and mortar. It is just a space to be filled temporarily with people and then emptied again. It is nothing more than that. Now, I know that the meaning, the significance of the church building has been thrown into particular prominence by the coronavirus crisis and by the closing of churches. Some Anglican churches have tried to make a virtue of this, saying the church is more than a building. One of the Anglican churches in Norwich near us now has the strapline, Church is a people, not a building. I can see what they're getting at, and there's an attractive simplicity to this. But I think that vision, when you examine it closely, misses something out, or rather, someone out. And so the simple question I would want to ask, just to qualify that statement, is, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? It's the same question, by the way, that we need to ask gently and simply when people use the slogan, We are church. Again, a powerful simplicity there, we are church. But when you examine it closely, the simple question to ask again in return is, Where is Jesus? St Paul tells us that Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. There is no church without Christ as its head. The body doesn't exist, the, the body doesn't live without the head. It is like Christ's own metaphor of the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Cut off from the vine, the branches wither. Without Christ, we wither. And without the living presence of Christ, the church is just another civil society like the Sea Scouts, or a knitting group, or a political party, or a campaigning charity. It might do good things, but it would no longer be the church, and it would certainly no longer save souls. But what, you may ask, does all this have to do with the church building? Well, this is what I'm getting at when I suggest that these apparently simple statements need to be examined closely, examine to see whether there is something more profound that they're missing out. So, a few more questions. Firstly, why is the building important? It is important, amongst other things, because it is the house of God. And it is the house, if you like, of Jesus Christ himself. And then, why is it important that this house of God should exist in physical form? Well, let's think for a moment about the Incarnation, the Word becoming flesh, God becoming man. It is necessary for the salvation of the world that God should take human form, physical form, with all the risks and vulnerabilities and ultimately the suffering that this entails for him. But again, think for a moment what happens when Christ comes on earth. What is, if you like, the first vulnerability he endures? 
the first deprivation he endures for us. He doesn't have a home. There is no room at the inn. The creator of the world has nowhere to lay his head. As St John says at the beginning of his gospel, the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. The incarnation means that God in Jesus Christ has definitively decided to make his home among us, physically, in bodily reality among us. So in the light of that presence, the question of his home takes on a whole new importance. It is also the resolution of a whole bigger question of where God lives that has dogged the Bible and salvation history right from the start. The Gospel of St John is actually a really good place to see this question being worked out because the Gospel of John is powerfully concerned with the Old Testament scriptures and constantly refers to them. All the Gospels reference the Old Testament, of course, but John in a special and specially concentrated way. So let's take that opening hymn that begins the Gospel of John as an example. The hymn, as it probably was in the original, that begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John summarises salvation history in, what, 17, 18 verses, beginning with creation and culminating in the Incarnation. And how exactly does he describe the Incarnation? Well, we all know the words, I'm sure. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Only dwelt is the English equivalent for something that is rather more particular, more specific and not very English in the original. The original says, Logos, Sarx, Egenito, Caius, Genuson, and Hamin. And the word was made flesh and pitched his tent among us. Or the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. As I say, more specific than the English and not very English. Why pitched his tent or tabernacled? Well, John, of course, is referencing, as he does so often, the Old Testament, and in particular Moses. One of the recurrent themes in John is how Jesus continuously supersedes Moses, the great lawgiver of the Jewish faith, going beyond the foundations that he established. And so here John says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And when he says, when John says the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, he is referencing Moses again. And the book of Exodus, where God promises to dwell with man in a tabernacle. God says to Moses, uh, this is Exodus 25, uh, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, so you shall make it. And so this is the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt within the tent with Moses and the people of Israel. And this is the origin of the tabernacle that John speaks of in the Incarnation, and it is the origin of every tabernacle in every Catholic church in the world today. Because the physical presence of Jesus Christ, 
the bodily reality of God made man does not, of course, come to an end with the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. Now, the physical reality does come to an end if you're a Protestant, if you're an Anglican, and as always, I try to be careful here. I'm not knocking these people. I'm just trying to describe the reality of what they believe. For them, the physical reality ends and it becomes a spiritual reality. I was uh, visited a while ago before lockdown in my office in the university by a young Anglican minister who was commenting on the crucifixes on the walls. There are perhaps half a dozen crucifixes on the office wall. I think he thought it was a bit balmy, actually. Anyway, he came from a modern contemporary Anglican church and he wasn't actually familiar with the crucifix. He wasn't familiar with a cross with a corpus with the physical body of Christ on it. And I just remarked, well, yes, it's very important, the corpus, because it is an image of the physical reality of the incarnation. Oh, yes, he said. I think he felt he had to sort of justify a cross without a body. So, oh, yes, he said, and we have the empty cross as a symbol of the resurrection. And we talked about other stuff. But those words uh, struck me. I remember them afterwards. We have the empty cross as a symbol of the resurrection. If you're not Catholic, Christ's presence in the world is symbolic rather than physical and actual. The cross is a symbol of the resurrection, not a reality of the incarnation. The Eucharist, however you describe it, is a symbol, not a reality. It is not real flesh and blood. It is just a symbol. Perhaps a very important symbol, but a symbol nonetheless. But if you're Catholic, it is all real. And because it is real, everything else changes. When Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper, this is my body, it really is. When he says to them, do this in memory of me, they really do continue to do this. And his words and the power of the Holy Spirit continue to make him really present in our midst. And thus his promise to us at the ascension, I am with you always, even to the end of time, is fulfilled every time the Mass is celebrated. Jesus Christ is really and truly present, body, blood, soul and divinity. And that body still needs a home. Christ still comes, as the Gospel of John says, Christ still comes to his own, looking for a home. And so in every church, the tabernacle that John referred to in the opening of his Gospel, that tabernacle provides the home that Christ seeks. And because of that presence, because of the real presence of Jesus Christ, because of the Eucharist, because of the body of Christ that we celebrate in this Sunday's feast, because of this, the church can never be just an empty space. So I come back to that difference between the churches I visited in Kuala Lumpur, which was such a profound difference as far as I was concerned then, as an immature Christian starting out that journey. It's a difference that's still with us today. You can still experience it when you visit churches, and you can still see it in the way different communities treat their buildings. Here in Norwich, for example, the Anglican community have begun, and you may well have seen this in the news or on social media or wherever, uh, the Anglican community have begun to put visitor attractions inside the cathedral. 
So last year they had a giant helter-skelter in the church, and this year they were planning to install a giant dinosaur skeleton, which they were calling Dippy, as in short for Diplodocus. And again, I, I, I don't mean to be uh, uncharitably critical, I just want to analyse the mindset that makes this possible. This is the point. It is only possible to put helter-skelters or dinosaur skeletons inside the church if the church is just an empty space. So I can see that these visitor attractions, helter-skelters or whatever, are exactly that visitor attractions, things whose purpose is to attract visitors. But it is only possible and reasonable to put helter-skelters or dinosaur skeletons inside the church if you have nothing else already inside the building to attract them in. When I visited the Cathedral of St. John in Kuala Lumpur all those years ago, well, there simply wasn't room for a helter-skelter, there were too many people already there, but I was attracted in by the Eucharist and by the life of the community founded on the Eucharist, living and present at the heart of that building. So I guess ultimately it is only possible to say the church building has no importance if you do not believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And so just one last point on this. If this is what attracted me into the church, as it has done so many others, then it's also true that believing in the real presence of Jesus Christ and living out that belief is the most effective evangelization. It brings people in. And so behaving reverently towards the Eucharist is really important. It's not just keeping the rules. It's not just good manners. And it's important to say this because sometimes people are resistant to this, they don't like being told they have to keep the rules, and they don't like being told their manners are not good enough, even if it's true. Now, of course, it's much more than this. It is also a matter of evangelization, of attracting others in. When we receive the Eucharist with reverence and joy, it is attractive to others. When we receive the Eucharist with casualness, complacency and a lack of reverence, when we take it for granted, it does not attract others to the church. This is the difference that led me into the Catholic Church, and please God, the way you and I treat the Lord in the Most Holy Eucharist will lead many others along the same path into his church and to his life. Amen. So as we come to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for being with me. Do remember to click the follow button and follow this podcast if you don't do so already. And as always, do get in touch with any comments or questions you have, any suggestions. And you can comment via Podbean or you can reach me on my Diocese of East Anglia email address, andrew.eburn at rcdea.org.uk. This week we're looking forward to opening the cathedral here, so I look forward to perhaps seeing some of you there. And most important of all, the Lord Jesus Christ will be physically present among us in the Blessed Sacrament and at some point on the High Altar itself. And I'll upload another episode next Sunday 
and look forward to joining you then. Let's end then, as we always should do, with the prayer of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>